All right, welcome to the Medicine Podcast. This is Dr. Christopher Hernandez, your host, and today we're going to be talking about hypothyroidism. Thank you to Dr. Ross Merkison for reviewing and improving the content of this episode. Okay, let's try to keep this episode simple and just run through some of the most high-yield facts about hypothyroidism. The only little digression I'm going to allow myself is an explanation of the man behind the name Hashimoto thyroiditis. If we're going to be using these names all the time, I just think it's interesting to know at least a little bit about who these people were. Other than that, though, I'll stick to high-yield facts. First of all, what is hypothyroidism? There are classic symptoms, of course, but the definition actually has nothing to do with symptoms and everything to do with laboratory values. Patients are classified as either overtly hypothyroid or subclinically hypothyroid, but even this distinction is based on the lab values and not at all on symptoms. So let's start there. The relevant lab values are the TSH and the free T4. The free T3 assay is a relatively unreliable test and is not very commonly used. So remember your hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis. TRH from the hypothalamus stimulates the release of TSH from the anterior pituitary, which in turn stimulates the thyroid gland to release thyroid hormone. There's a feedback loop here that acts on both the hypothalamus and the pituitary, so if thyroid hormone, that is T3 or T4, is low, then TSH should be high. So a high TSH is, by definition, hypothyroidism, and it's always the first test you order when suspicious for any kind of thyroid disease. Anytime a high TSH is seen, suggesting hypothyroidism, a free T4 should be checked. And if the free T4 is low, you have overt hypothyroidism. If it's normal, however, then you just have a high TSH with a normal T4. So that's what we call subclinical hypothyroidism. Patients with overt hypothyroidism are the ones that tend to have symptoms, of course, but symptoms would just support the diagnosis. Now let's go ahead and take a minute to discuss what the symptoms of hypothyroidism are. Generally, the symptoms of hypothyroidism have to do with slowing down the body's metabolic processes, an overall slowing down of the organism. We probably all remember the most general symptoms of hypothyroidism, fatigue and weight gain primarily, and also cold intolerance. Then there are the more organ-specific findings. Neuropsychiatrically, you can see decreased concentration, depression, psychomotor retardation, hypersomnolence. That all seems to fit. Instead of the hyperreflexia seen in hyperthyroidism, you can see delayed relaxation of deep tendon reflexes. Cardiovascularly, you see bradycardia, which makes sense. Interestingly, you can also see diastolic hypertension because the heart actually doesn't relax as well in hypothyroidism. To me, that seemed slightly counterintuitive at first, but if you think of even the parenchyma of the heart as slowed down, it does seem to make sense. Moving on, you can see constipation, which fits. You can see menstrual disturbances, usually menorrhagia. 
One symptom that doesn't fit quite as well to me are the myalgias and arthralgias that can be seen. And lastly, you get the things that my patients seem to complain about the most, namely dry skin and hair loss. Remember, hair loss can also be seen in hyperthyroidism. And everybody has dry skin, so this clinical sign is of questionable utility, I think. But the textbook says you see it, and you can also see brittle nails, periorbital edema, lateral truncation of the eyebrows, and myxidematous skin changes. Lateral truncation of the eyebrows sounds fairly subtle and obscure to me, but it's something that is really seen. More interestingly to me, hypothyroidism is also associated with some lab abnormalities, most notably hypercholesterolemia, which occurs because cholesterol metabolism is slowed or reduced. Technically, there is a decreased LDL receptor expression. This, of course, contributes to the development of cardiovascular disease, so hypothyroidism leads indirectly to increased cardiovascular disease. It's partially for this reason that all patients with overt hypothyroidism should be treated, even if the patient has no symptoms. All non-pregnant adults with subclinical hypothyroidism and a TSH above 10 should be treated as well, even if they don't have symptoms. We'll talk more about treatment at the end. To finish our brief discussion of lab values, in addition to hypercholesterolemia, you may also see anemia or hyponatremia. Alright, let's move on to etiology. The causes of hypothyroidism are gratifyingly easy to remember because it's almost always Hashimoto's or something iatrogenic, at least in the United States. Worldwide, by far the most common cause of hypothyroidism is iodine deficiency due to lack of iodine in the diet. 2 billion people are affected to some degree by iodine deficiency. And it's a huge problem, actually the number one cause of preventable intellectual or developmental disability. Which is sad because, as I just said, it should be preventable. Here in the United States, we iodize, or fortify with iodine, our table salt. Many other countries do the same. So we get plenty of iodine. As such, by far the leading cause of hypothyroidism for us is either A. Hashimoto's or B. a result of treatments of the thyroid, for example thyroidectomy, radioactive iodine therapy, external beam radiation, etc. I'll talk about all that stuff in more detail in the next episode, which will be about hyperthyroidism. For now, let's just lump those causes together as essentially iatrogenic. The final, somewhat less common causes of hypothyroidism to be aware of are central hypothyroidism, congenital hypothyroidism, and drug-induced hypothyroidism. So let's take a minute here to review each of these etiologies in a little more detail. Let's start with Hashimoto's. First of all, who is Hashimoto? I'm pretty sure nobody ever explained that to me in medical school. Side note, the only other well-known diseases with Japanese names are Takayasu's arteritis and Kawasaki's disease, and I never learned who those guys are either. It turns out Hashimoto's disease is named after a Japanese physician named Hakaru Hashimoto. Hakaru Hashimoto lived from 1881 to 1934, came from a long line of physicians, and described his disease, which he called Struma lymphomatosa, in a paper published in a German journal in 1912 when Hashimoto himself was 31 years old. 
It was a long, well-written, detailed paper, 30 pages in length. He was very confident he'd identified a new disease, and he described the characteristic histologic changes with extremely detailed drawings. However, it wasn't until the early 1930s, when his paper was recognized by the medical community at large, and the term Hashimoto's thyroiditis began to be used around the world. Sadly, he died of typhoid fever at the age of 52, before receiving recognition for his work. More details about his life can be found in a 2002 paper from Endocrine Journal entitled Hashimoto's Disease and Dr. Hakaru Hashimoto. Anyway, all you need to know about Hashimoto's thyroiditis is that it's an autoimmune disease in which the thyroid gland is gradually destroyed. It's associated with antithyroid peroxidase, or anti-TPO, and antithyroglobulin antibodies. Patients who have it are at increased risk for non-Hodgkin lymphoma, usually B-cell. Patients may be hyperthyroid at first due to thyrotoxicosis during follicular rupture, but will of course be hypothyroid in the long run. In other words, the typical pattern of thyroiditis. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Central hypothyroidism is what it sounds like, a problem with either the hypothalamus or pituitary. Tumors, trauma, infiltrative disorders, etc., leading to inappropriately low TSH. These are rare causes of hypothyroidism and would be considered forms of secondary hypothyroidism. In such cases, you obviously cannot use the TSH to measure whether you're treating appropriately, so you trend T4 levels instead. Congenital hypothyroidism used to be called cretinism and is associated with the six P's, pot-bellied, pale, puffy-faced child with protruding umbilicus, protuberant tongue, and poor brain development. That's pot-bellied, pale, puffy-faced child with protruding umbilicus, protuberant tongue, and poor brain development. This is usually seen in regions of iodine deficiency and associated maternal iodine deficiency, but can also be due to other reasons, such as a congenitally absent thyroid gland, an ectopic thyroid gland, a mutated TSH receptor, etc. The two drugs most famously associated with inducing hypothyroidism are amiodarone and lithium, but there are others, interferon-alpha, interleukin-2, methimazole, and more. A fancy word for such drugs is goitrogen, which can be remembered because it has the same root as the word goiter, or goiter, goitrogen. Lastly, I should mention that you can of course always see a transient or self-limited thyroiditis, for example after a viral infection, which may result in hyperthyroidism followed by hypothyroidism, but patients should eventually return to a euthyroid state. This is the so-called dequervain thyroiditis. While they're in the thick of it, they may have an elevated ESR and a painful thyroid. Dequervain equals pain. I'll discuss thyroiditis in more detail in the next episode. Alright, that's all I'm going to say about the various etiologies of hypothyroidism. Let's finally move on to treatment. Treatment, as we all know, is with levothyroxine, otherwise known by its brand name, Synthroid. Levothyroxine is just a manufactured version of T4, 
and is pretty much always in the top five for most commonly prescribed medications in the U.S. It's even hit number one before, so it's worth knowing about. One of the key things to remember is that it's best taken on an empty stomach an hour before breakfast or coffee, separate from all the patient's other medications. If they just can't stick to that kind of schedule, you can suggest that they take it at the end of the day, just before bed, again, hopefully separate from any recent meals or other medications. This all has to do with maximizing absorption of the drug. Its absorption is finicky, 70-80% to at best, and easily interfered with. It requires an acidic gastric pH, for example, so PPIs interfere with absorption. Calcium and iron interfere with absorption. Calcium and ferrous sulfate actually bind to levothyroxine and should be administered four hours apart from levothyroxine, even if they're just components of a multivitamin. Coffee, whether caffeinated or not, interferes with absorption. Levothyroxine is absorbed in the jejunum and ileum, so anything that affects the small bowel will interfere with absorption, including any kind of small bowel surgery. This can lead to excellent test questions where a patient who had been on a stable dose of levothyroxine for many years is suddenly noted to have steadily increasing dose requirements and maybe a new skin rash, itchy blisters over the knees perhaps, This, of course, would be a case of the patient developing celiac disease, and the rash would be dermatitis herpetiformis. Remember, dermatitis herpetiformis is, of course, not caused by the herpes virus, but is named that way because it kind of looks like herpes. But there are many other good test questions to be written about the absorption of levothyroxine, so it's worth reading about. If nothing else, definitely remember PPIs, iron, calcium, coffee, and celiac disease. Another little tidbit to know about levothyroxine is initial dosing. It's generally very simple. Dosing is weight-based, 1.6 micrograms per kilogram of ideal or lean body weight. You start with that, then titrate according to TSH levels if it's primary hypothyroidism, or less commonly according to free T4 levels if it's secondary hypothyroidism. You check levels six to eight weeks after initiating the dose, or after any change in dose. So usually you begin with this 1.6 mic per kg weight-based dosing and titrate from there. However, certain patient populations require a more careful approach, namely patients with cardiac disease, or older patients, that is, patients greater than 65 years of age. In these two groups, guidelines say to begin treatment with a more conservative dose, 25 to 50 micrograms, so not a weight-based dose at all. This is due to the effects of levothyroxine on myocardial oxygen demand. You don't want to put too much strain on the heart. Needless to say, when in doubt, it's better to err on the side of being conservative with the dose. Lastly, keep in mind that many patients, for example Hashimoto's disease patients or patients who have been treated for Graves' disease, may still have residual thyroid function, in which case lower doses of levothyroxine may suffice. Okay, one last thing about treatment. Levothyroxine actually isn't the only thyroid hormone replacement therapy on the market. There are also things like liothyronine, known by its brand name Cytomel, or Armor Armor Thyroid, which is just thyroid hormone extract, 
usually made from pigs, sheep, or cows. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing those words correctly because they come up so rarely. Occasionally, you get a patient that swears he or she needs to be on one of these products, but the vast majority of patients are on levothyroxine, which is generally preferred. Alright, as usual, I ended up going a little longer than intended. There are always just so many little details to know. In this episode, we talked about the definition of hypothyroidism, the symptoms and lab values it's associated with, the various etiologies, and treatments. In the next episode, we'll take a similar approach, but we'll be talking about the other side of the coin, hyperthyroidism. As always, please feel free to email me with questions, feedback, or comments at themedicinepodcast at gmail.com. The podcast should be available on many different podcasting platforms by now, so if you like the show, please do leave a rating or a review. It will help other listeners to find it. All right then, see you next time. (laughs) 